Good evening, church family. Uh, we are in the second part of, uh, well, the second chapter out of three in, for, in Second Peter. Oh, so many Peters, so many chapters. Second Peter, chapter two, first part of that chapter. Next week, you'll have Second Peter, chapter two, second part of that chapter. Got that straight? Good. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into God's word together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you open it to our hearts and open up our hearts to what you have to say to us through it. And we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're about to strike the heart of this letter uh, because the first word at the beginning of chapter 2 is but. And but is a conjunction. It's a hinge for ideas. So everything that came before this but uh, was for the purpose of equipping the reader for what's about to be brought up here. And that reason is plainly that Peter is concerned about this proliferation of false teachers in the early church and uh, how vulnerable particularly these Gentile churches will be to them. Verses 1 to 9, our passage for today, we can further break that down into two parts. We've got verses 1 to 3, Peter's warning about these false teachers. Verses 4 to 9, Peter uh, demonstrates that God is a true judge between good and evil and therefore each believer is responsible to guard themselves against this destructive teaching. And the rest of the chapter contains very colorful descriptions of what these teachers do and what they are like, and we'll be on that next week. But for now, Peter's focus is that there are false teachers coming, and they are coming into the young church, and despite what anyone says, God will not sit idly by while the gospel is distorted uh, and the message of Jesus is twisted away. So let's step through the passage. Now, right off the bat, there is... Um, an interesting distinction that Peter makes. Uh, In verse 1, he says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. A distinction between prophets and teachers right away. There were false prophets among the people, that is to say the Israelites, uh, the people of God, and there will be false teachers among you, the church, the reborn people of Jesus. And we need to distinguish here between the New Testament um, discussion of prophecy as a gift that God gives to some believers and the role of prophet in the Old Testament because they are not precisely the same thing. Prophecy is a spiritual gift. Uh, It's about miraculous insight into people and events and the plans that God has for people and events. Um, It certainly exists as a very active part of the early church and most would contend that it exists even actively now in the world. But A prophet in the Old Testament sense is a divinely ordained spokesman uh, for the word of God. It was a very honorable position, and it was often given no honor at all. Uh, It means that you are, um, if you are participating in a society decaying into sin and to corruption, then this guy is here to give voice to God's complaints that you should change your ways and turn back to him. And a lot of people participate in the sin and decay of their societies, that is to say everyone participates in that. That's the fallenness of man. That's the primary problem the Bible is contending with. Uh, These prophets, they give advice to kings that's usually ignored for ruinous consequences. Um, Their elevated connection to the transcendent God and his word and his uh, his power makes their life so hard they often end up as these sort of hermits and weirdos. But by the time of the early church, there are no more prophets. They're all done. Uh, God stopped sending them 400 years earlier and he sent kind of a last prophet Um, as a poignant announcement for the coming of Jesus, and that prophet was John the Baptist. Guess what? A hermit and a weirdo. And a corrupt king cut off his head because a pretty girl dared him to. 
So that's what happens to prophets. After this, you have Jesus, the fulfillment of all of this prophecy, who explains and brings clarity to so much of the word of God spoken by prophets and written down in what we now call the Old Testament. And so once you get to the early church, they have the Old Testament, they have the words of those prophets, and now what they have are not prophets, but they have teachers who are coming in and attempting to illuminate those scriptures, especially in light of how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have explained them. And just like the Old Testament had false prophets who uh, were lured away into either pretending to have wisdom from God when they didn't for some kind of personal gain or holding their tongue when they did have something to say from God, uh, the new church has to contend with false teachers who claim to have insight into the scriptures and the God behind them, but actually know nothing at all. And the ones Peter most worries about are those who are these carnal exploiters of God's people. So we're not talking about isolated weirdos who hear the voice of God and then come and talk to a king. We are talking about people who have the word of God written down and given to them. And then they put it to their own stories and their own interpretation and soften it and uh, make it more pleasing to fleshy desires. Now, all teachers have to be uh, intelligent people. They have to be, otherwise no one would respect them as teachers. Um, they can read and interpret scripture, where in the early church, most people couldn't even read. They know the scriptures in some sense because uh, they need to be able to read them and explain pe um, it to people, even if their understanding is less than clear in the case of false teachers. And the early church needed teachers because most people spent most of their lives just desperately scrambling to survive. That's the norm throughout history. They had crops to grow, they had sheep to tend, they had voting constituents even to appease, they had children to raise. They needed to outsource some of the heavy lifting of spiritual learning to a professional who would work for their interest, who would help them and teach them right. And this is even more true today than it was then. We defer in, uh, in some part to authorities because the fullness of life is too big and too varied for us to know everything that we need to get through it. And so we can imagine that a catastrophe comes in the wake of someone who fits this teacher profile. They're smart, they're likable, they, they seem to grasp the scriptures, but in fact they are an exploiter. Someone who is teaching by fabricated stories and otherwise enjoying the generosity of the people of God and the people they are purporting to teach. And this passage says that they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. So here comes an inconvenient truth out of the passage. You need a teacher to teach you true things about scriptures. And you don't know that what those true things are until you are taught. So it's a catch-22. How do you know you're being taught right until you are taught right? Unless you can, then you are right for exploitation. In their greed, Peter says, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. So how do you pick a teacher to listen to? until you learn the truth from a good teacher. It's not an easy task. In fact, it's so difficult that for about 1,200 years, about from about 400 AD to 600, uh, 1600 AD, the, the church just sort of dodged that question entirely. 
How do you know who is a good teacher? Well, everyone in the village calls him Father Brendan, and they know that, that he is a good teacher because he is his Father Brendan, and uh, he can read and teach the scriptures, and we know he's a good teacher because no other band of priests has come along and burned him yet. Uh, and that's our, all the proof we need. He hasn't been burned as a heretic. Normally, that's how we sorted these things out back in those days. We trust the smart and holy people up the chain of command in God's church to know what they're doing. Father Brendan is a good teacher because he's a priest, and priests are good teachers. And if he's not, well, I'm sure, I am sure that sooner or later, someone will come along and helpfully set him on fire. That's a massive simplification, of course, but it serves the idea that we really have a genuine question about who do we trust to teach us. And who do we as individuals accountable to God delegate the authority to teach us to about God's word and his promises and his character? Because after 1,200 years, a little thing called the Reformation happened. And at that time, you had the Holy Roman Empire, which is basically sort of an alliance of all of the little states that made up, uh, that now make up modern Germany and Italy, uh, all serving at the pleasure of the emperor who was himself appointed by the Pope. So you had this Holy Roman Empire sort of the core of Europe and of the world at that time as far as the Europeans were concerned. And then to massively simplify, a few upstart monks from Wittenberg's put their, uh, Wittenberg put their hands up and they said, actually, we think the teachers are teaching wrong and, we would, and are often corrupt and we would like to teach something else. And then everyone in Europe killed each other for 30 years until 11 million people were dead and the population of the empire had dropped by 40%. And one of the beautiful things about being in a Baptist church, in the Baptist denomination, is that we are the church that kind of sprang out of that historical crater saying, here's an idea, chief. How about we stop killing each other over religious differences? Not because religion isn't important, it's the most important thing, but because only God can judge spiritual matters and the hearts of men. And after this, after the fact is um, the position that the world has generally come to honor, and it came as a trade-off. The trade-off is this. People will stop killing each other over who has the right teachings. However, this means that any schmo can comb his hair and stand on a box and wave a Bible in one hand and claim to have just as valid teaching authority about that Bible as anyone else. Have you ever heard someone ask, why are there so many denominations? Uh, well, or have you asked it yourself? Well, this is why. Because the alternative was abdicating responsibility for teaching entirely to a priesthood. And if that priesthood gets something wrong and someone raises a stink about it, you might just end up killing 11 million people. So the authority for teaching, it fled out of the hands of the Roman church at the time. They'll still claim today to be the one true church, but as an ex as an ex-Catholic myself, uh, I can tell you that no one has tried to set me on fire yet. So they've lost that amount of their teeth. And teachers are free to follow their consciences, and, uh, and people are free to follow their teachers, and boy, is there a variety now. Uh, we got Presbyterians and Puritans and Methodists and Lutherans and Brethren and Catholics and Baptists and all kinds of things. We got people uh, who baptize their babies and people who don't believe in having babies at all. We got shakers and quakers uh, who tremble when they pray and snake handlers who just do the thing that they say. And that's not even talking about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians who were all just so far off the map we don't even invite them over anymore. The conclusion of most Christian churches most broadly is that we want so much to avoid killing each other for another 30 years 
uh, that we can agree on a few core ideas. Jesus is the Son of God who paid uh, the price in blood for our sins. Uh, the Bible is the infallible Word of God. Uh, God is the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we can agree on these sort of core ideas, then we will all consider each other more or less family in the greater kingdom of God. We will love and pray for each other with quakes or shakes or snakes or whatever you've got to do, you nutcases. But every one of those little fracturing denominations has been desperately trying to solve this question, who gets to teach and how do we trust them ever since? And it's not easy to discern good teachers from bad because if you had the expertise to know who is the really good teacher, you would be a teacher yourself. We don't get to be experts. But Peter is not exhorting us to become experts so that we can judge our teachers. Peter's concern is their behavior and how he might lead others in their behavior. It's their pride in teaching blasphemy. It's their depraved conduct that will, um, will bring the way of truth into disrepute. It's their greed that will drive them to exploit the naive church folk who will trust them. In short, it's the false teachers uh, not living with the kind of character and confidence and conviction that all of chapter 1 of this, um, of this book was telling believers to cultivate in themselves as a sign of their true life in Christ. Faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love from the first half of chapter 1, the virtues of a believer and beyond that. Christians also have the teachings of the apostles who witnessed and walked with Jesus Christ, what we now call the New Testament, and the testimony of the prophets of old, what we now call the Old Testament. All of these things are witnesses to assess the value of your biblical teachers. And when I say teachers, I include, but do not limit the term to, your pastors at SDBC. Any teaching you get for a group study material, a Christian podcast you listen to, um, or friends who have a kind of a mentor role over you in their life, does their teaching comport with what you know of the Word of God. And if you're unsure because that level of grappling with the Word of God is a bit beyond your reach right now, how are they living in their life? Do they live like a self-serving creature of the world or like a disciple of Christ? That's the test that we have to apply. This is why Peter wrote to all the believers. Each of us has a responsibility to weigh the authorities that we allow to influence us by the best measures we have available. And if you can do that in good conscience and pursue this righteous life Peter describes, then you can't go wrong. It seems the false teachers in Peter's time were prone particularly to one false kind of teaching that really got his goat, and that is the idea that Jesus wasn't actually coming back. There isn't actually a resurrection or a judgment. This is all just hooey. Um, it's much harder to get away with a statement like that today in a church because we have the whole New Testament uh, that contains, among other things, a whole book called Revelation, which is a vision of the end of the world and Jesus' return and judgment. The people that, um, that got Peter's letter delivered to them in that time, they didn't have that. They didn't have Revelation. They didn't have the New Testament. So they were much more susceptible to the teaching that maybe there wasn't a coming judgment at all. Jesus had died and risen again, apparently, and gone to heaven, and, and now what? Peter says, there are people who say that Jesus is not coming back. Those guys are idiots. Not only does God intend to judge, he has already demonstrated his willingness to judge. Verses 4 to 9. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held in judgment. For if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Peter uses three examples of God exercising judgment in the world and will work backwards through them. So God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah, these two depraved cities in Genesis 19, for their wicked action and delivered Lot out of that destruction because Lot, for all his evident flaws, if you read that chapter, was righteous enough to feel tormented by the depravity happening around him. The point here is that God separates out the righteous and brings down judgment on the wicked. And God flooded the world and spared Noah and his family in Genesis 7. The Bible describes that the world had fallen uh, into sinful depravity as a rule rather than as an exception. And he, um, rather than let righteousness perish on the earth, God determined that he would eradicate this depraved humanity that had so profoundly rejected him and everything he had asked of them. The point here is that following the preacher of righteousness into living righteously means that maybe you won't have to be out in the rain when the judgment of God comes. And the first example that Peter calls on here is in fact the most mysterious. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell to be bound in judgment. Greek word there is Tartarus for hell, for anyone who's interested. Um, That's an interesting idea. Now, where is this from? Well, some say it's from Genesis 6, uh, the mysterious passage about the Nephilim. Uh, The scripture there suggests that there was a period of time in ancient, ancient history where uh, the sons of God, probably angels, uh, saw the daughters of humans were beautiful and married them and had children by them. And this is in violation to God's uh, to God's desires. The Bible did not speak in much detail about that event, in fact. But church tradition holds that some time after this, perhaps during the flood, there was a purging in the realm of angels, um, which, in which those who disobeyed God to do this, they were locked up for later judgment in a place called Tartarus. And there are alternative views to what this passage means uh, here in Peter. Um, the popular historical one comes from Milton's Paradise Lost, in which... Um, before the creation of mankind, Satan and his defecting angels, they attack heaven uh, and then they are slapped out of heaven so hard they end up in a new realm called hell where they are all kept imprisoned except when the mysteries of God permit them to sometimes sneak out and uh, do silly things like tempting Adam and Eve to disobey God. All we can say for sure about what Peter is saying at this point is that uh, There must have existed in the early church a clear and obvious teaching about some sect of angels who disobeyed God and God locked up waiting for judgment. The fact that such a teaching didn't make it into the Bible that we have today in a clear account, uh, except outside of this verse, of course, um, is testament that it's maybe not important enough or specific enough to lose sleep over. But the point is this, God does not make exception for angels who disobey him. Why would he shy away from judging man? And the takeaway from that, which seems so obvious as to feel ridiculous as to say in a church context, 
is that anyone who tells you to live like there is no tomorrow, like there is no judgment, like there is no end, that person is a bad teacher. And if you're thinking, boy, I sure am glad that I have great teachers at my church. Well, first off, thank you. That's so nice. I really thank you. Um, But also, don't get comfortable. Because most false teachers aren't even involved with church today. We have the word culture. And we throw that word uh, around a lot. Usually we mean all the books and movies and topics of conversation that we, as a society-wide group of people, like to engage with. But the word culture comes from the same French and Latin roots from which we get words like cultivate, uh, sort of to nourish and to shape something as it grows, um, from the same roots as the word cult, as in uh, the broadest meaning of cult, a religion, a religious center. Um, The source of the society's cultivation, you might say. And for the most of history, most of at least Western history, the culture comes from the cult, uh, comes from the church that used to be at the center of people's lives. The center of their teaching and the center of their teaching was the center of their lives. And those lives um, create the art and the discussion and the feeling that uh, comes from those people. And that is the culture kind of exuding from them. Does that make sense? Your culture is your most influential teacher. And you can come to church twice a week and be involved in ministries until the cows come home. But if your culture is what you permit to influence you most of all, then you designate that as your true teacher. And now in a world in which the church has no power to compel you uh, to learn from the one true church or to stifle opposing voices or to make decisions for you, it falls to you personally to decide what culture you will allow to influence you or not. Now, that's not the same as saying that all Christians need to withdraw from the world and hide lest they be influenced by culture. It's saying that you need to take responsibility for what kinds of culture you consume and you know how it affects you. If you lived in England, uh, there is a soccer culture, a football culture, that is so strong that people still, when they win or lose, uh, get swept up into car-flipping mobs that sometimes beat people to death. That's a stupid culture. You shouldn't let yourself be so invested in a soccer match that it turns you into an idiot who is a hazard to people. There's also a music culture that is targeted particularly at you, young people. Here's an interesting question for you, young people. Uh, What music do you listen to and do you think it influences you? Here's a fun test. Look up the top 20 popular songs right now on Spotify or whatever billboard you like to look at. You can do this for any point of time in history to learn about the culture of that time, but if if you're a young person, let's say younger than 28, um, this is relevant to you. And how many of the songs that you see in that list are about tonight is the night and all we have is the night, or some variation thereof, uh, about maybe uh, some fatuous nerd rapping about how, uh, how great his life is and big noting himself Uh, in the song, or moon-eyed rapturous nonsense about falling in love or falling out of love or loving someone who is bad for you or being bad at love. Is it all of them? Is every song on that list relating to at least one of those things? Do you think they teach you anything? Probably not. You probably keep yourself well guarded against them. 
or unless a substantial part of your life is dominated by anxiety about missing out on life or being insecure about your self-worth or worrying that you'll never find love, then maybe you have a problem there. This is why God created 30-something-year-olds, uh, to tell you, teenagers and 20-something-year-olds, that all of that stuff is stupid. We had it pumped into our heads when we were your age, and now we are the dumbest, least accomplished generation in human history. All because we didn't have the cognizance to choose better teachers. And one day, everyone will be held to account for what we have done. Every false teacher who sold busy, frightened, naive people a self-destructive message will have to reckon with a God who immolates the evil, who drowns the wicked, and who locks up deviant angels in celestial dungeons. But it will not be enough for us to say at that time, oh, I can't be held to account for how I wasted my years or let my character, the core of who I am, degenerate and waste into greed or lust or pride or impulsive selfishness. Because you, more than anyone in history, have better teachers crying out for your attention right now and a biblical example to test them by. The God who saved you wants you to live into that salvation to be sanctified step by step and to become in great part or in small a teacher of righteousness in the lives of others, whether hundreds in a church or most preciously of all your friends and your family in your own life. Take that stewardship of yourself seriously because the God in whose hands you have placed yourself takes it seriously too. So let's pray together. Father God, we praise you for what you've done for us, for the forgiveness you've given us, and for the liberty of life you've offered to those of us who have accepted you. We thank you for that salvation. But now we pray for your help as well. Help us to take on a sense of responsibility that is commensurate to the freedom that you've given us, to learn from where we choose to learn to teach what we desire. For those of us who influence the lives of others, let us be a godly influence. Convict us if we are ever leading anyone astray. For each of us, everyone a learner, help us to be discerning in the cultural voices that we listen to and to test them against Scripture and to test the teachers against the kind of life that Scripture prescribes. We know your son returns soon, Father. Help us not to live in childish obsession over our own life but show us how to live a life in joyful anticipation of that day to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.